Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today's co-host, Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome, Jessica. Hello, hello. Hello. And uh, our guest is Dr. Jihang Padma, who has combined academic career with a vocation as a spiritual teacher. Jihang has served as Director of spiritual, Spirituality and Education, as well as a Buddhist chaplain at Wesleyan College, Wesley College for 14 years. Her work at this college as an interfaith leader has given her a passion for comparative religions and interfaith dialogue. Uh, Jihang holds a doctorate in psychology from Sophia University. Her dissertation research focuses on consciousness and healing through the lens of traditional Buddhist healing practice. Her recent works include our, our um, neighbor's faith, stories of interfaith encounters, and arts of uh, contemplative care, pioneering voices in Buddhist chaplaincy, and pastoral work. Her first book, Zen Practices for Transformative Time, was published by Quest Books in 2013. And she's currently working on a second book based on original research on consciousness and healing. Welcome, Jihang. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, let's start the conversation off just a broad question about what is consciousness and what is mind? How, does, how do you define that in your, in your research? <laughs> well, those are beautiful questions because actually um, one interesting thing about consciousness studies is there is no singly accepted definition wow. of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. You know, how do they, how do they go about that? But I'll, I'll, what I can say is that consciousness is, can be analogous to light. Light, yeah. You know, the image of light. Because light can't be perceived directly, but it illuminates what it touches. Mm. And so consciousness is, is exactly like that. Wow. Um, mind is something that uh, scientists have avoided describing for years. <laughs> Uh, because you can't touch it. Yeah. But there is a definition that I enjoy uh, by Daniel Siegel, the neuropsychologist, who says that mind is an embodied and a relational process uh, supporting the flow of energy and information. Mm. So if the, what's radical about that is that he's saying that the mind is not simply a function of the brain. The mind is a process. It's, it's, it's constantly emerging. Mm. And... It's relational, which means if the mind is relational, then it's not simply encased in an individual, but it's always coming into being together. Mm. And if we recognize mind as being embodied and relational, then we can't only think about ourselves because our mind is actually coming into being through everything and everyone that we encounter. Mm. That gives us... uh, basically a requirement to care for others' well-being, to care for the environment, because all of that is contributing to the relational nature of our mind. Interesting, interesting. And when we think about like healing or healing modalities in relationship to consciousness or, or, or mental continuums and stuff like that, what, what, what have you learned about the process of healing in, in, from, from any kind of uh, traumatic or, or anything like that and how, how, that, how that process works of of, of, of healing consciousness. Well, yeah. in order for the healing to go deep, basically what they find is that the, the body has to be involved. Mm. You know, that, they're, that working uh, with the body, we have access to a much deeper reservoir, mm. particularly since uh, there's a lot that contributes to trauma that might have taken place before um, we're able to set down memories. You know, all mm. of the relational imprints, for instance, for any 
person are really set down in the first couple years of life. That's the critical period. So think about it. All of our relationships are essentially based on this blueprint that we have no conscious memory of. Yeah. Interesting. Which is, is of course, why therapists have so much good business. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. So um, in regards to uh, the body and the relationship between the body and the mind of the mental continuum, how do you, how do you understand that? It, the, through the body, yeah, uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, vitality. You mm. know, we have range uh, uh, of emotions, you know, through what you could call the, the higher levels of the mind, the prefrontal cortex. We have those, um, you know, higher level skills, executive decision making, you know, ethics and and so forth. You know, something that modulates all of that <clears throat> limbic uh, center activity that's coming through the body. So if we didn't have the, our connection to the limbic center, we wouldn't have that vitality, that sense of being alive. <clears throat> but if we didn't have, a, you know, a good, clear prefrontal cortex, that would all be chaotic. Mm. You know, so our life is basically finding that middle way between the chaos um, of the limbic system and potential rigidity of the brain. Wow. You know, when we have a good balance between those, we're in touch with our body and in touch with other people, you know, able to have some emotional intelligence without being overwhelmed by the uh, quantity of emotion that we sense. Mm. Great. Um, I have a question about body and mind stuff because yeah. I recently had an experience where it was very disassociative where I felt like um, I could really feel my mind and myself and it felt very separate from my body. And that's not something I feel all the time. And then I've mm. had other experiences where my mind and body feel very much connected. And when I'm in a more meditative, when I'm mm. practicing yoga, when I have like intense feelings of like safety and love. Mm. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's anything, if there's any places you could direct our attention for if anyone's really you know, wanting to learn more and understand that relationship between mind and body where a good place to start is? I would say a good place to start would be uh, Daniel Siegel's uh, book, Mind Sight, or um, The Mindful Brain, The Mindful Therapist. He's very prolific, Mm. Um, you know, and it's actually very approachable. Yeah, and as far as practices go, like, uh, I guess, tell us a little bit about meditative practices or yoga practices or any kind of practice that can really ground or or help the practitioner to make the strengthen that connection between, uh, you know, mind and body or is that, is that kind of what you think is the best? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now, wherever we are, we can just pause for a moment and take a few deep breaths. Mm. I've taught this to uh, people working in emergency rooms and no matter how much of a rush you're in, you still have to breathe. Yeah. Just being conscious of the breath. And, and I think that the, that also helps as far as my question goes about, you know, when we think about patterns and we think about, you know, a lot of times people feel like they're caught in the same loops, you know, mm-hmm. and it feels like, you know, maybe taking a moment can kind of help you become conscious and aware of those patterns. So if you tell us a little bit about kind of how meditative practice can help kind of disrupt and, and be part of the healing process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in our society, I think, you know, we have this sort of, uh, epidemic of, mm. of being a little bit uh, disassociated from the body. Yeah. You know, that, and the work is, is to really come back home to it. You're taking a few deep cleansing breaths through the body, 
you know, through the, the deepest corners of the lungs and then working from those lungs down through um, the lower belly mm-hmm. and then through the lower belly to the whole lower body and, and through that feeling our connection to the ground, you know, to the earth. You know, even here in the middle of the city, there is earth. And as we do that, uh, we are um, deepening our capacity uh, to connect with others. Because the more grounded we are in our own sensory experience, um, the, the more fluid um, our relationships will be. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's one of, uh, one of the things that I get reminded of all the time is um, I had a great uh, meditation mentor who always was reminding me that, you know, you can go a very long time without food mm. and water, actually. Yeah. You know, but you can only go a few minutes without breath. Yeah. And yet it's usually the last thing that we think about because it is an involuntary system. And, mm. and, and I was, sometimes I just think about like in a science fiction kind of way, yeah. what would happen? Like, I mean, I honestly would love to know like what actually would happen if like snap our fingers right now, suddenly breath was only voluntary. Yeah, well, mm. Like uh, what would, what would happen? Yeah, would I feel like too much. people would just keel over. Yeah. Like just by forgetting to breathe and recognizing that you know, in every moment of the day, there is something that we have the ability to consciously be aware of that affects, you know, the health of our mind and our body. And I think there's so many people just feel like they don't have control, like there's nothing they can do, you know, especially with their health, both mental and physical health. And I know I forget that constantly. And then when I go back into my practice, you know, it's always this reminder of, Oh, just like, like the quality, the way that I breathe has the ability to completely affect my mind and my body. And, and it's kind of like everyone's just walking around with this like awesome weapon, but they don't realize that they have it or they don't know how to use it, but we all do. And, Mm. you know, it's just, yeah, I just, I wish everyone remembered to breathe a little bit more often. In the research I did in uh, uh, traditional Buddhist healing practices, that mindfulness was the cornerstone, you know, for the uh, Tibetan doctor practitioners and the other healers who I spoke to, because in order to attend to that complex system of pulses that exists within Tibetan medicine, you have to be extremely mindful, like exquisitely mindful, you know, and then through that capacity for mindfulness, connecting to the client, being able to build a relationship from that. Mm. You know, and then being able to teach the client how to bring that awareness to themselves, to their own body. You know, because wherever that awareness has been lost, that's the place where the, um, you know, the illness or the, you know, the dysfunction has come in. You know, when, when we lose that connection, there's literally disease. Mm-hmm. Have you ever... I find that in my daily life, because of the work that I'm in with artists and, and meditation, that most of the people I interact with are very present hmm. and they feel very present, you know, or they can bring themselves back to that. But if I think about, you know, like going home and and family members or, yeah. or uh, you know, um, for people who are not who have not dedicated their life to this or have not yet stumbled upon um, meditation, I'm wondering about how like have you ever what's the easiest way to interact with someone where 
they're not in that state or, you know, is are there good approaches that can help? Oh, absolutely. What I find is that for some people who have a very active mind, it can help to uh, start with movement. In our Korean Zen tradition, there is a system called Sanyu, which literally means meditation play. Mm. You know, so you make it a little playful, maybe taking a big stretch, you know, bringing the arms up above the head as we breathe in. And as we breathe out, bringing them down, making mm. a big circle. And, and through that, um, it, it becomes much easier uh, to come back together with our breath. And, and then through that, that can really be a force in our life, you know, for continuing to generate vital energy and also for staying grounded in our um, transformative and, you know, sometimes intense modern world. Thank you. Thank you. So one thing I wanted to also talk about was about ritual and how the role of ritual and regular, uh, and tell us a little bit about ritual, how you define it and, and how you think that plays in a role in uh, kind of connecting with this meditative practice, connecting with uh, the consciousness and the body and such, yeah. Well, in, the, in Tibetan language, their, their word for ritual, choga, simply means a way to accomplish a goal. That's mm. pretty broad. Yeah. You know, and, but what that points to, I think, is that every moment in life um, can be uh, a living ritual. And that's the direction of ritual is to be able to bring that same quality and intensity of awareness to everything that we do. But, but through ritual, we have access to a very deep well. But first of all, ritual utilizes the senses, and, and through that, it reconnects us to the limbic system, to the vagus nerve, um, to the interior cingulate, all of those places through which we're, we're gaining a, a sort of introceptive awareness, a very body-centered awareness. And um, through that, able to tap into intuition and those deeper knowings that are sometimes just beneath the surface, you know, what we could call tacit awareness. Uh, the next part is that uh, through ritual, we are uh, connecting with our community, you know, connecting with a way of knowing. Ritual, you could say, is embodied narrative. As human beings, we're constantly making meaning through stories, through narrative. So, but when that narrative is embodied, um, it, it gains a kind of immediacy, uh, a, a, a sense of numinousness. And then through that, we're, we're able to create a meaning together you know, through sound, you know, it, what's basically happening when we're creating ritual together in this embodied way is that our own nervous systems are in training together so that, you know, the heart comes into the same rhythm, the breathing comes into the same rhythm, and suddenly we're in this place of mindful awareness together, um, entrained together, uh, and that is what uh, the consciousness researcher Stefan Schwartz would say uh, is a shared experience of non-local awareness. So non-local awareness is his technical term for what really is beyond name that we could call um, Buddha nature or, you know, that the, the place of stillness. We could call it truth or beauty. But it's, it's known in all of those spiritual traditions when we're able to bring the mind back into the heart and and deeply listen. 
So at that point, we connect with some kind of universal energy. We see clearly, we hear clearly, because the mind is like a clear forest pool or a clear mirror. And as we connect with that energy, then we can use that. You know, we can use that to affect healing. Mm. And we can also use that, um, you know, to uh, make changes in our, our day-to-day life. So great, so great. And also, we were talking in the pre-interview question, you are talking a little bit about how um, some of the times in which community you know, has has the, the challenges of community, that the, the pervasive patterns of, uh, othering and such. And oh, we talk yes. a little bit about how sometimes and how maybe ritual can help counter that or mm-hmm. maybe make some connection between how, you know, how, what the, what the othering is and how that is a malfunction of the, yeah. Right. So in our, in, in the way that our society is set up right now, mm. you know, there's, there are, there are kind of forces or, you know, some kind of, of narratives, you know, going on around out there that would seek to divide us, you know, that would play the us versus them. What a good ritual can do is to remind us that there is no us. There's just, there's no them. There's just us. Mm. And, and so one of those rituals, you know, that exist as you could say an indigenous technology is circle process. Circle process goes back thousands of years. It's found in, um, indigenous cultures across the world. And what I would say is that all of us, you know, we're originally indigenous. You know, all of us sometime came from a country, uh, you know, in which we were connected to the earth and to each other in meaningful ways. So circle process is one way that we can kind of tap into that, uh, you know, to a way of connecting that isn't competitive, but that is um, mutually uh, beneficial and um, lateral, you know, so a, a place of um, respectful relationship. Within circle, uh, there are processes of uh, speaking from the heart and and um, listening from the heart, listening resiliently, even when it's hard to listen. And through these restorative justice circles um, that my colleague uh, Gina Harris and I have been facilitating, in, in that um, facilitated space, we're then able to receive uh, others' stories and to speak to those in, in a way that is free uh, of that um, this sort of one up, one down that can otherwise sometimes characterize our relationships. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how these kinds of um, patterns and processes are like, you know, or something we need to be conscious of, so mindful of, so that then we can then infuse in a, a oneness, a transcendent oneness, so that we can show the the us within communities. Um, and then even on a personal level, we talked about, um, you are talking about how attachment patterns are unconsciously uh, kind of encoded into the limbic body, or, mm. um, or these patterns are not, um, and these patterns are not usually shifted just through a cerebral approach, but rather... You know, it seems like they need to be they need to be like rewriting the code in our yeah. yeah they they exist in that in yeah. that place before conscious memory. They exist um, in the limbic system, mm. in the body based system, and and so it, it, we really need to do some body based work to um, reclaim that space. You know, to be more conscious of what's going on there, to bring what's unconscious to light. 
And that's what good ritual can do. When we talk about ritual, people might think, oh, that's something esoteric. But no, I mean, all the time we're, we're, we're making ritual. If you go to a doctor's office and they immediately take your temperature um, and put you on the scale, that's a ritual. Mm. The, the question is, is our ritual effective ritual or is it not effective ritual? Mm. And so, I, so what, I, what I'm inviting is that we find ways of effectual, effective ritual that reconnect us to ourselves and to each other. I think it's really interesting. A lot of the writers that I work with, because we do a lot of habit work, because mm. writing is hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the things I talk about is this, I, you know, just helping people understand that, you know, the first time you ever do something, it, it creates that little neural pathway, that little pattern. Yeah. And that if you don't ever consciously put work into it again, like you're probably just going to follow that loop, you know, mm. and just being able to realizing how much more ability that you have to actually go in there and be like, oh, well, let me change that loop. And I think it's like changing the ritual, essentially. If you're mm -hmm. used to coming home and cracking open a beer is the first thing, like your body will start to do it unconsciously like a zombie. Mm. And that this idea of inviting ritual in as a way to say, like, let me look at this activity and is this what I want to be doing? But that you can create a new ritual simply by bringing your awareness to it and practicing that. You know, I always like to say 42 times in a row, just as a completely arbitrary and random number that I like. <laughs> um, 42 is good. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I feel like I've never gotten to 42 because it works <laughs> before in them, but I feel like it's a long enough time. But I do think that most, I think most people don't realize that they can change those like, like unconscious instincts that mm -hmm. seem to exist inside of them. And so they feel like they are like a victim to them own their own self. And, you know, you're talking about others and, and yeah, how dangerous it is to see us as separate versus, you know, but also I think it happens in ourselves so much where we see that our body is our enemy or oh, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, James Joyce wrote about that years ago where he said, you know, Mr. Duffy was living a short distance from his body. <laughs> <laughs> and I see when I teach meditation, yeah, I see that all the time. And and so the question is, you know, what can what kind of ritual will help us um, to come back into that innate joy of being alive? You know, so for me, when I teach meditation, uh, particularly when I'll be teaching meditation up at the sanctuary at Omega Institute this this summer, you know, I'll begin with a poem, you know, something to open us up, you know, to to create another kind of ritual. You know, and the poem is 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 something that invites that active listening and um, brings people into a place of stillness. You know, so I might share something like David White's The Opening of Eyes. And, and so in that poem, he says, That day I saw beneath dark clouds the passing of light over the water, and I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I, as I had before, that life is not the passing memory of what has been, nor is it the, the pages of a great book remaining to be read. But it is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart, after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert, fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man who, throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven, finds himself astonished, opened at last, 
fallen in love with solid ground. You know, so beginning those sessions with a poem, it's creating a new ritual. Mm. And it's a, it's a ritual of inviting us into um, that potential of, of seeing every moment in our life as sacred, not waiting for it to happen when the weather is perfect, you know, or some other conditions that we make up are present. No, I mean, it can be right now. Yeah. And would you call this, or is this kind of part of a transpersonal psychology, or can you tell us a little bit about how, how what the term means and then how that, how that kind of connects a little bit of the dots of what I'm seeing to be emerging? Yeah. We're just saying, yeah. So transpersonal psychology, literally, the trans bit means, you know, beyond the personal. Mm. And all of us, I, I really think, you know, can strive or, or really can achieve something that is beyond simply healthy adjustment, which has traditionally been the goal of clinical psychology. Mm. You know, to be adjusted is okay. Yes, I do hope that. But what about beyond that? What about connecting um, to others in a way uh, that deepens our sense of meaning? Mm. What about connecting to something that's greater than ourselves? Mm. You know, those, those are part of the human potential and that is is the place where I entered into transpersonal psychology. I knew from being a Buddhist nun and a Zen teacher that there was something, you know, beyond adjustment. And through transpersonal psychology as a discipline, I found the language and um, the colleagues, you know, to embark on the, you know, that journey. And with that, I've found these uh, these potentials for exploration of, for instance, how could traditional counsel or circle process support, you know, our working through issues of race and equity? Or how can traditional Buddhist uh, rituals illuminate something about the healing process that might be true across cultures? You know, that, those are some of the explorations that I'm interested in right now. Interesting, interesting. So why don't, we, why don't I give you a chance to tell us a little bit of a story that, um, you know, something that... Uh, uh, an event in your life that really transformed you, really helped you understand these philosophies in a very grounded, you know, way. Something relating to some of your practices or your experiences in your in your career. Yeah. Well, I guess when I was in uh, high school, I worked as an emergency medical technician, and out of that, you know, I being at the bedside of people, I saw that life could change in a moment in a heartbeat. And being an emergency medical technician, you know, there's something we can do. But back in those days, especially, that was um, late 80s. You know, part of it was just scoop and run, mm. so to speak. So then I had this question about what could really help. And that brought me uh, eventually to study meditation. And as, as I studied meditation, it became more important to me and I took jobs that would give me uh, space and time to do meditation. One of those jobs was in the early 90s at an acupuncture clinic in Boston that was founded specifically to support AIDS victims. And the clients we had were, you know, sort of very personable and maybe not that different in age or circumstance except for that one crucial difference. Um, which was their HIV status. And the acupuncture was able to help, and, and we certainly were treating the whole person, 
but of course it wasn't curing anything. You know, so across the time when they were coming in, I would see, you know, the disease and its um, progression. And again, I said, you know, it, life is short, and what can I really do? So what I found was that meditation offered a route in so that regardless of circumstance, people could find some measure of peace. You know, they could uh, reclaim their inner life and and tap into a reservoir that could uh, nourish them. You know, so that, yes, there was still going to be pain, but there didn't need to be that kind of suffering. So that that actually became uh, my path, and through that, connecting to teachers who had really embodied that practice, you know, who had uh, this this kind of aura of loving kindness, of insight that that would fill a room with presence. I thought to myself, if I persevere on this path and achieve even a fraction of of what they have attained, then it will have been a, a good life. So that was, uh, you know, I made that decision over 20 years ago, um, but I haven't come to the end of it yet. So we're still we're still going on. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> I always find it. I I love just meditating on the idea of pain versus suffering because it's yeah. something that, especially with artists, um, I'm always like, listen. I was like, if you write, there's going to be pain, mm-hmm. and if you don't write, there's going to be pain. Um, but for most artists, there's only one that really, like, if you don't write, there will be suffering, which is, you know, like that you went through that time and you had that pain, but it didn't result in anything, Mm. you know, on the page as, as an artist. And, you know, I, I think about that constantly where I'm just like, all right, well, you know, today there's going to be X amount of sensation Mm. and I might as well choose the sensation that results in the, the greatest long-term you know, uh, uh, results versus the one that might just feed me temporarily. That's right. And, and that's one of the, the lessons of being on the meditation cushion is being able to sit with our own discomfort. Generally, as a species, we have this very low tolerance for discomfort, as, as Pima Children and other teachers have noted. But as we're able to sit with that, you know, as we're able to create a new relationship to that, we, we begin to have a greater freedom inside so that we can feel the discomfort and and we can also uh persevere you know if we if we tune into pain emotional pain physical pain we notice it isn't a solid thing it isn't static it changes it shifts you know there might be heat intensity pressure and it, it, in some way it's okay we can get out of the way and we can let that move through us and then as we do that actually what happens is uh, our body shifts from the sympathetic system, which is um, connected with a fight or flight uh, response, you know, to parasympathetic, right? The relaxation response, and the body begins, in many ways, to heal itself. You know, when our body mind are relaxed, uh, um, we're able to come into that discomfort from a different place, and we're we're more able to tap into our own capacity for insight and compassion. Yeah, I think uh, for me, I have a tendency to try to outthink negative yeah. emotions a lot. Like I will keep, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I will 
I will, my body will start to feel pain in one way and I will allow myself to become very busy and fill my space as a way of, you know, of just, I think a fear of not being able to survive feeling the, you know, the pain of, of what's happened. And I just recently went through the experience of, um, you know, just realizing I'm like, you know, I'm holding it back, but allowing it to flow through me and just being like, okay, with weeks and weeks of feeling like, oh, like underneath the anger, now that's gone and that's going to replace with pain Mm. and the pain's going to be replaced with depression. And then under that depression was loneliness. But then to me, loneliness is always hand in hand with love. And so that Mm. was me finding my way back to, you know, and just realizing that for, you know, a year and a half of my life, I, I think I was really using running my company as a way of out thinking and and not sitting with those negative emotions because I was so scared that I wouldn't live through it, that it would actually destroy me. Hmm. And that's that's commonly the case. But when we're able to bring that awareness and we recognize that, you know, that's the anger or, um, you know, the tightness, you know, it's it's usually secondary to something else. And, and there's a poem by Rick Fields where he says everything, um, you know, is is complete as is. You know, underneath that anger, there there's um, fear. You know, beneath that, uh, sadness, and beyond that, the vast sky. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so often, you know, we're in a hurry. We're trying to outthink or outrun. Uh, you know, and and I think that actually, in some way, fuels our our hunger for consumption. That if we have that, you know, the next iPhone or you know that that perfect mate, right? Then everything will suddenly be happy. You know, but what if we can find that happiness now? You know, what if we find that happiness in the fact that uh, nothing lasts? You know, it's sort of uh, going the other way. It's a complete revolution. You know, so, for instance, uh, last weekend I taught uh, a two-day workshop on dying consciously. It's hard to find a topic that our society is more eager to avoid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And yet, you know, these brave souls signed on, you know, and we started by talking about how our society tries to cover up mortality, you know, and basically manages that great existential anxiety by pretending until the very last moment that it doesn't exist. You know, but then if we're able to address it and and confront that and be with that, we're able to make these decisions about what matters most to us. And and then when we make those decisions about what matters most, we're able to live from that place and it's really refreshing. You know, so that you realize that life is is precious and beautiful precisely because it doesn't last. Yeah, and and what about finding meaning in that? Not that you will go on, but that life will go on. And what's amazing was that at the end of this weekend, everyone felt cleansed and refreshed. And I thought to myself, I could I could spend my entire life doing this. You know that that there there's. A, a deeper creative energy that I then had my finger on much more closely than I that I had before I started the weekend of teaching. You know, so paradoxically, when we move towards 
what um, is concerning to us, we have access to this highest energy because of the uh, fearlessness. Yeah, speaking of which about the spiritual warrior and how the role of, or what you understand the spiritual warrior to be and, and how that, and that play between, you know, um, peaceful and, and being a warrior. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, one of my uh, mentors that I was very fortunate to encounter in this life was the teacher Mahakosananda of Cambodia. So he had ordained in the, the Theravadan tradition, which in, in which he spent a huge amount of time practicing the most simple mindfulness, simply raising an arm up and raising it down, taking one step, then taking another, and then adding to that a loving-kindness practice. You know, you know may I be happy? Um, may I have a deep and natural peace? You know, may then all beings be happy. You know, may all beings be held in loving kindness. It's not complicated. Anyone can understand that, but how many people can do that? So he had uh, embarked on this practice back when um, the war was going on in Cambodia. You know, all his family was killed. Most of the monks, almost all the monks who remained in Cambodia were killed He'd been in the Thai forest studying at the time the war broke out. So when he came back to his country, it was at the um, Khmer-Thai border where refugee camps were set up. And he simply went in chanting, you know, hatred is never overcome by hatred, but by love alone is healed. That is an ancient and eternal law. And then out of that, people's hearts began to break open. And he invited uh, the people to join him in these walks, which he called the Dharma Yetra, uh, which is basically the um, the Dharma, you know, the teaching, uh, uh, together as uh, as a path, a passage. The, the Cambodian words for that were kahani kahani, which simply means step by step. So, with each step, you know, of, of practicing compassion, practicing peace. Practicing kindness, you know, the uh, people's hearts began to transform. And he would say, a peaceful heart makes a peaceful person. A peaceful person makes a peaceful family. A peaceful family makes a peaceful community. A peaceful community makes a peaceful nation. A peaceful nation makes a peaceful world. So he referred to this as his army, you know, an army for peace. And there were some folks who said, you know, monks belong in the temple. But what he said to them was, um, whether we follow the teaching of Jesus or the Buddha or Gandhi, you know, if we follow it correctly, then we have to go out into the temples of human experience, the battlefields, the minefields, you know, wherever the, this work is most needed, you know, the prisons. I think about that now, living in San Diego uh, near the border and and all that is going on at the border right now. And, you know, so perhaps that's a place where I'm going to be able to take action because that's local for me. You know, but here in Brooklyn, there's no shortage of good work to do. Mm. Yeah, it's so important, I think, to remember the social and the and the way in which the personal can connect, you know, chaining ourselves, chains our communities, is what I'm hearing from what you're saying. That's that, right. It's very yeah. grassroots. Very grassroots, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And That's I, excellent. Yeah. I think at a time where there's a lot of people right now feeling like there's a lot of chaos and a lot mm. of not harmony in the world and feeling like, I know I've had plenty of conversations recently of just people feeling like, I don't know what to do and yeah. feeling like the problems are too big and, and just, you know, knowing that even if you are the only person you have access to, you still have that ability to choose something that will help move us in the direction as a world that you believe that we should be. And I, I mean, I know I forget it and have to remember constantly. Yeah. And I think that uh, these uh, mounting mantras in the breath has been a practice that helps mm-hmm. kind of connect with that. You know, do you think that the, um, talking a little bit about mantra practice and repeating these phrases and ritual, mm-hmm. do you think that it kind of taps into that, uh, that connection to those, to that language or what, how do you think it functions? Or how do you think, like, how do you think, like, I, I feel like it just yeah. a repeated movement, the repeated phrase that helps kind of connect with our encoding of like peace and in our bodies, maybe. I yeah. don't know. That's how well, music, for instance, mm-hmm. um, movement, yeah, mantra, all of these things are are helping to rewire. So in uh, Siegel's words, we get better vertical integration. The vertical integration is between uh, the body and the mind, essentially. Mm. And then also horizontal integration, which is left brain, right brain. You know, as, as we do that, as we come into that place of greater wholeness, then that's also going to, um, you know, create change in the people around us. Yeah, so the, what's what's useful about mantra is is it gives us very something very simple and repetitive, and and, and that brings us to the place of stilling the mind. Yeah, you know, so but like any, at any given moment, you know, here in the city, our minds might be in ten thousand different places simultaneously, and so that what the mantra does is bring that back to one point. You know, through repetition. Um, the connections, you know, between uh, the neural connections become stronger. And so that becomes a place we can more easily resource. It becomes a new mind habit, you know, kind of overriding um, the squirrel mind, which we all have. It's, yeah. But it's like training a puppy. You keep bringing it back and then something um, begins to happen where the change takes place. And then we have uh, a clear new place to live from. But we call it practice because it it requires a sort of everyday mindfulness. You know, all of this, whether it's the ritual, the mantra, uh, the loving kindness practice, anything and everything that we do in a spiritual way it, as a formal practice is serving us so that every moment of our life we can live in a sacred manner. Yeah, I'm a big fan of working with people who think that they don't like meditation or yeah. that they're not capable. And I love it when people are like, oh, well, I just, you know, I can't sit that long. And I, I'm always just like, listen, I am ADD. I have dyslexia. I am bipolar. <laughs> I, you know, I was like, I found meditation not because I'm good at it, but because it is an amazing tool and that the more your mind runs around, the more practice you get. And when I do, you know, our meditative writing sessions and we'll do them anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour and a half. And I tell people, I'm like, I want you to get lost. I want your mind to wander off because that act of bringing yourself back, that's the actual meditation part in the writing is just recognizing that you've wandered away from your character mm-hmm. and going and finding them again and and following them. And that, you know, it is 
that but that anything can be done in that manner you know if you know i'm like so you can't sit like there's walking meditation there's eating meditation you can turn anything into that mindful activity and i just think it's for people who are a little bit more resistant it's a great way into be like oh, okay well just how about when you walk to your car can mm-hmm. you just pay attention to what the soles of your feet feel like from your door to door and and that is an entry point to to get people into understanding like how profound the practice can be because yes. I know that I resisted meditation as a practice yeah. like until someone really was like what you're doing is meditation you're just not calling it that because yeah. you have this weird ego about <laughs> not being a earthy spiritual person yeah. Um, but yeah so I think if there's anyone out there who's in that you know just knowing that it doesn't have to be like you know sitting cross-legged on mm-hmm. a pillow which I do love don't yeah. get me wrong I do yeah. dig yeah. the lotus position but but like for people who are, are not as who have yet to be introduced to the world, just finding a smaller, more approachable version a, a path of it. In. Yeah. What path I in, what yeah. I would do is uh, drink a cup of tea, but drink it so that you're really drinking it, that you're, you're really in connection with that. And then the whole universe opens up in that cup of tea. Mm. Uh, teaching at Wellesley College, uh, I worked with many students who were very goal oriented and didn't think they had time for meditation, which is, of course, when you most need it. <laughs> and so I would say, come on in. You know, let's just, just come on in for a cup of tea. We, we're just going to drink tea. And as we would drink the tea, right, you know, just kind of like slowing down, you know, it's like this beautiful green tea in a, a porcelain cup. And we can just notice the texture of the cup. You know, notice how the, how the tea is upon the palate. You just slow down and really experience that. Is it warm? Is it cold? What's going on there? And, you know, through um, entering into stillness through a cup of tea, then following that, suddenly everything feels more alive. Mm. You know, the colors are um, more vivid. You know, the the, uh, fragrance of the tea is more fresh. And we begin to feel our feet on the earth as if we were children again. So that that experience of being alive is really what we're all hungry for. You don't need to be a professional meditator to benefit from that. So just to make a connection between uh, uh, episodes and such, like I just done an episode on Friday night. We did special, I did a special episode with a guest who talked a little bit about um, the understanding of energy and understandings of energies and such, and, and circling back to our original conversation about consciousness and energy. Um, uh, when we think about like that, the question that I posed was where, where do you think you come from or where do you think we come from mm. and where are we going? And, uh, their response was that, you know, we come from energy and that we subsume into energy again. Yeah. So if you could talk a little bit about that and how your understanding of that is about energy versus, or what does that term energy, what does that term energy mean to you? And how does that relate with, with, uh, with consciousness? That or, is a big question. Yeah. So Stefan Schwartz, you know, he ha- did, He's done tons of groundbreaking research and is publishes uh, continuously in the field. His, his working day begins at uh, 4 a.m. in the morning and ends every day at 11 at night. I don't know how he does that. <laughs> so he, he coined the term subtle energy to describe uh, how it is that we are able to, to tap in 
through practice of practices of mindfulness, you know, practices, for instance, of qigong, which are designed to help us to reconnect with the vital energy within and around. Within Korean Zen, what we talk about is how um, reality is like a circle. You know, at zero degrees in the circle, we're just connecting to things on the surface as they are in a rather dualistic way. I like Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't like Dunkin' Donuts. I want to have happiness. I want to avoid suffering like that. 90 degrees in the circle, we begin to have maybe some idea, some impression, something, you know, to bounce off of others about what is it all about. But 180 degrees in the circle is where we have that taste of emptiness. Some people might experience that through the birth of a child, you know, or for uh, gazing at a magnificent sunset, you know, or um, looking through a telescope, you know, and seeing the stars in the sky, you know, but, the, but through that, somehow we have a glimpse of emptiness, you know, within practice, within a Zen practice, we work to uh, deepen that connection so that that can be a force in our life. But it's really a place before and beyond words. So, so to say anything is already a mistake, you know, but we're here on the radio. So what can we do? <laughs> So then from 180 degrees, tapping into, directly experiencing that, uh, what's, what Stefan would call non-local awareness, what in Zen we, we might call Buddha nature, you know, out of that, then we're able to use that. You know, we're able to, to use that energy um, to uh, create changes in our own body. If, you know, if you do Tai Chi and Qigong, it, it will absolutely have an effect. Um, if you're uh, working with that energy and you're an artist, then that gives you a, a resource for poetry, you know, for, for the word, you know, to, to take in um, a greater range, you know, because suddenly our own internal universe is, is that much broader. And within our interpersonal relationships, then, to be able to create change, chemistry, electricity, Having, having worked in that way, you know, with the energy, we come full circle, 360 degrees. Everything is just as it is, you know, but, but at the same time, as um, the poet Emily Dickinson said, you know, for the first time, we can see the river in the tree. We see things, you know, just as they are, but as we see them, we see the connections. You know, uh, as, as we eat a strawberry, you know, we notice the place on the strawberry where it connected to the plant. Mm. You know, as we um, walk through the grocery store, you know, we notice the person who is there, you know, who is taking our money. We might make eye contact, you know, and that's shifting everything around us. The studies have shown that when one person practices loving kindness, people six degrees away become kinder. You know, there's a story sometimes I've told about this Tai Chi teacher in the drive-in, you know, at a Starbucks, who was ordering coffee, and the person in the car behind him, you know, beeped impatiently. He bought a cup of coffee for that person behind him, and that actually had a ripple effect, so that 14 people, you know, ended up getting coffee. You know, <laughs> getting a cup of coffee wow. might not be a big deal, but there's uh -huh. also a story about how someone who practiced uh, meditation ended up donating uh, a kidney spontaneously. And that set a chain in motion through which 23 kidney transplants took place. 
you know, so whatever our sphere of activity, um, we can make an effect. It's like throwing a stone into the water. We never know how far those ripples will go. Thank you. you. Yeah, I think it's a really, it's a great visual metaphor that helped me kind of understand like karma in a different way of that, where I say like every action and, you know, every thought is, you know, a, a pebble in the pond and you just don't know how big that pond is so that the ripples hit the edge and then come back to you. Yes. And that's something where, you know, sometimes it's that day you do something nice for someone and and then they reciprocate. And other times it's years and years. And I've had that where, you know, I've had a writer come to me like from who's like 10 years ago, you said this to me in this class and this and this and this and because of that. And it's just a nice way to make it easier to move forward in a, in a, in a really positive and healthy way of just constantly thinking about, okay, I don't know how far these ripples will go, but I do believe that they will, you know, make their way back. And, um, or at least that's the, the metaphor that's been helping oh, me a absolutely. lot lately. <laughs> no, I think yeah. every time we do this, um, it's, it's sending ripples out and those ripples do touch another shore, you know, which has no name. And, and the ripples that come back from that other shore are our spiritual nutrition. Yeah. Now, every new moon and every full moon, I do a ceremony of gratitude, a traditional ceremony that comes from the Andes called a despacho. So we, we put very tangible things um, into that offering. You know, it's like making a mandala. You know, so we're, we're giving gratitude to the sun and the moon and the stars, you know, to the earth, you know, for the seasons. We're giving gratitude to the mountains for their presence. Uh, we're giving gratitude for the love that we have, the words that we find, the vitality within our bodies, everything. You know, and, and in some way, we're always uh, taking from the universe. You know, the sun is always shining, but the sun never says, you owe me. And so doing this, we're uh, giving something back. We're giving our love, our gratitude, our highest energy. And when you generate love and gratitude, absolutely something does come back. But uh, we can't ever be sure where or how, you know, fr- oh. from a synchronistic ex- uh, perspective, um, I have seen in my own life that that comes back exactly when it's most uh, needed. Yeah. I think one of the greatest things I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting one out of this or one of the takeaways for me is that like let, allowing the energy to flow through you and just uh, not to like, I think one of the patterns I have or one of the patterns a lot of us have is to kind of have that reservoir feeling that you have to cling on to grasp those feelings and, and, and try to control them, but rather just to allow them to pass through you and allow them to and experience the fullness of each of this energy, you know, the fullness of it, so that then you'll be able to uh, be able more open to um, letting go or, or allowing. or Yeah, that, it's like the poet Rilke said, yeah. let everything happen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Beauty and terror. Yeah. No feeling is final. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So as uh, as we start to wind down, I'm going to just quickly read a few announcements, but also I'll play um, the outro song, the outro um, chanting, um, Om Tari Tatari Soha. So you just set this up a little bit before we play. Just tell us what is this from or what is this? Uh, you had selected this um, mantra of the song? Yeah. Om, Om Tari Tutari Tutari Soha is a mantra of compassion, mm-hmm. right? It's It's a way of helping us um, to break through that illusion of separateness to the truth of our connection. You know, within Buddhist healing traditions, we say all sort of disease or illness ultimately comes from that, that 
place, you know, of the illusion of separation. And all of the healing work is simply to restore us to the truth of connection. So, so with that, you know, I, it's my hope that, that this interview we've done and the music um, benefit, you know, all beings in coming back to that connection, but the ones that were here before and the ones listening now and those yet to come. Yeah, I think definitely that connection, dedication, dedicating and, and renewing that energy, renewing that faith, that promise that then we're, we're returning to that course correction to that goal that we're achieving the goal of of being connected, of, of having peace and, and prosperity in our in our community. Which is the luminous yeah. awareness that yeah. we began with. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. So I'll be reading a few announcements, but then also in the background I'll play a little bit. Um, wait, hang on. Um, so let me just read the announcements first. Uh, Ready for Looking is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, improve media literacy and education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation, a monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent continues to helps us to continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford, all contributions and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. And you can go to radioflickin.org slash truth to power uh, to uh, sponsor this show or find out more. Um, Radio Brooklyn is uh, having a four-year anniversary party uh, at 6.14 at 6 p.m. So did you know that Radio Brooklyn has been on the air for four whole years? We celebrate our anniversary at the Law Party Friday, June 14th, 6 to 10 p.m. at Tradesman's Bar, 222 Bushwick Avenue, off the L Train's Montrose stop. Uh, please come and join us and uh, thank you so much for being listeners and uh, thank you and every Monday at 8 a.m. we play and we rebroadcast on Thursdays at at 9 a.m. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Oh, oh, oh. 